chapter 17, I, I, I hope, I trust that you've been really blessed by it. Because to me, it's been, it's been an amazing chapter of, of God's word. All of God's word is God's word. All of God's word is special. But sometimes some parts of it are especially special. And this chapter 17 is especially special because it is Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer just before he went to die, to be crucified, to pay the price of the sins of his people. Now Jesus knew that this is what was going to happen to him. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. Jesus knew that he was going to be killed. Jesus knew that he was going to give up his life for the sins of his people. Jesus knew that God's wrath for the sins of his people would be upon him. Now, all of that is very, very heavy. If you've got a heavy exam coming up, what do you think about most of the time? Your exam, of course. What do you pray about most of the time? Your exam, don't you? That, that's what's preoccupying your mind. Your mind, your desk, your thoughts, everything about you is thinking the exam is coming and the exam is weighing heavily on you. Or, or maybe you've got an operation coming up. A big operation, an important operation. The doctor's going to cut you open and open you up and you're, and you're fearful. And what's, on your, your, what's on your mind is what's going to happen. Well, Jesus has got this huge event ahead of him. And what is on his mind? What is on his mind comes out in his prayer. Because what is on your mind comes out in your praying. And here Jesus, he starts this prayer and he prays for himself. But more importantly, in the first few verses, he prays for God's glory. He wants God, the Father, to be glorified. Jesus, in his darkest hour, coming up to his darkest time, is praying for God's glory to come out of this. And then after moving from praying for himself and God's name to be glorified, he then starts praying for the 11 disciples that he's with. He's been with these 11 or 12 disciples for the last three years. Judas has left. Judas has gone to betray him. He's left with the 11. And he shares this, this sermon with him in verses thir chapters 13 through to 16. He, he opens his heart to them. He wants to prepare them for when he's gone. And then after he's preached the sermon, he prays for them. He opens up his heart to them. He prays for them. And then the astounding bit is... And this is this last section, the section that we had read for us just now, from verse 20 to the end. Jesus prays for you. Now I'm going to qualify that. When I say Jesus prays for you, he prays for everyone who is a Christian. Everyone who is a believer. He says there in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. This prayer is for you. 2,000 years ago, before Jesus' death, when our minds would be concentrating on ourselves, Jesus is praying for you. The prayer is full of the Trinity. The prayer is full of salvation. The prayer has these, these main requests where he's praying for love and unity and glory. Two weeks ago we looked at unity and saw how important that was for us as a church and individuals. Last week we looked at love. And we asked the question, who loves who? And we saw very clearly from this passage that God the Father loves Jesus. And God the Father loves us 
believers. We saw that Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves us, the believers. And who do we as believers love? We believe, we, we love Jesus and the Father. And we show our love to Jesus and the Father by being obedient. By doing what God commands. And that particular request here is to love one another as Christ first loved us. As we are to love each other around about us. But then we ask the question, how much does God love the believer? How much did Jesus love us? And and we went through some of the, the depth and the wonder of what Christ has done for us. And we saw the, the amazing fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came to save his enemies and make us right with God. And as we were dwelling on that, we actually realized that there was something more than this, something more incredible with God's love than just sacri- the sacrifice of Jesus. Something more than that. What can be more than that? We realized in these verses last week, That God loves us, his children, like he loves Jesus. That's just breathtaking to think like that. And how do we know that? Well, the passage tells us that. And so we ask the question, when did you fall in love? When did God the Father fall in love with you, believing friend? He's always been in love with you. Because God the Father has always loved God the Son. And God the Father's love for us is the same as his love for the Son. And this just blows our mind because everything in our lives has a beginning, doesn't it? Everything has a beginning. We were, we were born into this world. That was our beginning. And we, we go through our life starting things and doing things for the first time and learning things for the first time. God never learns anything. God has always been. And God's love for us, his children, has always been. And so we have this staggering truth that God loves us in this way. And so we saw, particularly in this request, that it wasn't just for believers. God wants the world to know of his love, to lead people to salvation. And that gives everyone here a hope. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, if if you don't know the love of God, you can come to him. You can repent and believe. You can cast your name, cast yourself on the Lord and he will save you. But Jesus prayed for the believers that we would know this love for salvation so that we would truly worship and so that we would be obedient. But now I'm wanting to move on to this last bit that I want us to to concentrate on. So we've looked at unity. We've looked at love. And now I want us to to spend the rest of this time on the word, the glory. Verse 22. Jesus prays like this and he says to God the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them children listen to that the glory that you have given me I have given to them do you understand that? 
And I think if I ask the mums and the dads and the students, there'll be a lot of puzzled looks around. What does this verse mean? What does it mean when Jesus says to God the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And so my first heading for this section now is simply this. Confusion. Confusion. It's confusing. This is, this is a complex statement and it can be confusing. You see, th- this statement asks the question, what is the glory? What is the glory that's been, that God's given to Jesus? What is the glory that Jesus has given to us? What is this? What is glory? What is glory in this context? It's all quite difficult because we think of God's glory. When do we think of God's glory? We think of God's glory around Christmas time. When Jesus was born, it was glory to God in the highest. And the angels came out and they were singing this song of of praise. Glory is a sense of the majesty and the wonder of who God is. How does God, the Father, give God, the Son, glory? And how does Jesus give glory to us? I don't know if you've thought about it before, but I want us to, to think about it because there is, it's worth wrestling with this because there's some great truth in here that will help us. Now, one of the commentators that I was looking at as, as he went through this passage, he, he quite helpfully, and I found it helpful, uh, went around and, and got all the different ideas that were out there. And in his notes on this passage, he, he said there's seven, seven different options, which he considers out of what he says many. So there's lots of options of what this can be. And the seven was the ones that he brought. And so I just want to bring quickly the seven ideas that he found around about studying on this, what the glory is, and then I want us to, to, to delve deeper. So some people think the glory that is spoken of in this verse 22 is the image and the likeness of God by which the disciples were renewed. It just gets more complicated, doesn't it? The image and the likeness of God by which the disciples were renewed. Or some people say it's the intense power and influence and authority accompanied all our Lord and all that our Lord did and said during his earthly ministry. Some some others went on to say it's the power of working miracles, which was the special peculiar power of our Lord while he was on this earth. Some other people say it's the heavenly glory and the immortality which the Lord has promised to his disciples. Someone also said it was the Lord's Supper, it's communion. I really haven't worked out that train of thought of how they got to that. The others I can see something, some but how they got to thinking that this glory is communion, the Lord's Supper, I, I don't know. Others said it was the, 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 the unity of mind and heart. The glory is the unity of mind and heart. And then seventhly and lastly, some people said that the glory means the Holy Spirit. Now, J.C. Ryle collected these from all sorts of different ideas. Some were from that great uh, African theologian, Augustine. Others were from Calvin later on. 
they were all championing their idea. And I'm not going to get sucked in and say to you, this one and this one means this and this one means that. I'm not going to look at that. I don't want to look at those. What I want us to do is what we should do every time we have a passage of scripture that's hard and difficult. I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to go back to this passage and find out what it means and what it means to us. You see, there's no point in us finding out what this glory means if it actually means nothing to us. There's no value of interpreting the scriptures unless it touches our hearts. And who do we need to help us do that? Children, can you remember? Who do we need us to help us understand the Bible? Can you remember what I said in the children's talk? Who do we need to help us help understand the Bible? Jesus, and he does it through the Holy Spirit, his helper, doesn't he? We need the Holy Spirit to help us. So right now, I'm going to commit the rest of this sermon to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to really help us understand this. Because this is difficult, but it's also really, really important to us. Almighty God, we've come to a passage of your scripture that's not immediately apparent of what it means. The glory that you have given me, I've given to, thee, to them. Oh Lord God, please come down and open our eyes. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what it means. Help us not only to understand what it means, O oh Lord God, but help us to understand what it means to us now what the application of it should be, how it should affect our hearts and our lives going forward. Speak to us through this word, O Lord God. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Use me as your mouthpiece. Help me to bring your thought to, the, to, to us this morning so that we may understand your word. And may you speak it into our hearts and our lives to the honor and the glory of your great and holy name. In Jesus' name we prayed. Amen. Well, I've used this illustration before, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have done jigsaw puzzles. The puzzles where you have lots of little different pieces of a picture, and you collect the pieces, and you look at the pieces, and you build the picture up. Yeah? You, you, you've done those before? Uh, we, we had one a little while back that had a thousand pieces. Where do you start with a thousand piece jigsaw? Well, Jacob loves jigsaws and what Jacob does first of all is he looks to find the bits that are easy what bits are easy there's four pieces that are just unique in a jigsaw puzzle and that's the corner pieces because they've got two corners yeah so you find the corner pieces and you know you've got one two three four and that's your start then after that you've got pieces that have just got a long edge that's the edge pieces and you find all the edge pieces. And you think, look at the colors and the shapes. And you, you then get the edge in. Because that's the easy bit. And then you look at the picture and you think, oh, there's a bright red flower there. Or there's a, a big colorful thing there. And you look for the bits that have got that color. And then you build that. And, and you start with what is easy. And then you move on to what is hard. Yep. Yeah? 
And that's exactly the same. When we study God's word, when we look at God's word, when we come to things that are, are difficult, when we come to things that are, are, are hard, what we find is there's clear bits of God's word that help us to understand what is difficult. And so often the problem that people have with God's word just look at the, the verse and they take that verse and then they, and they try to understand that verse out of its context and out of its big picture and you can come up with all sorts of strange ideas. I've illustrated that vividly before and, and, and many of you will have heard it but I know there's enough of you who are new here who won't have heard this illustration. There was a young man that was looking for guidance and to find guidance he just would open God's word and, and put his finger in and, and so he opened God's word and he read and Judas killed himself. Well he thought well that's not really what I want to do but God speaks through his word so he did it again and it said go and you do you likewise. And then he did it the third time and it said do what you do with haste. Now did that mean that God was telling that young man to kill himself? Absolutely not. Because God's word is, you've got to see all of God's word. And so as we look at this, we need to look at it in the context of all of God's word. So from the confusion, we're going to move to what is clear. What is clear? What do we know? What can we start building the edges of the picture with so that we can understand what this means? Now, the glory cannot mean the glory of Christ as God, the second person, the Trinity. You see, the glory of God, Jesus being God, was not given to him. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus has always been. And so, as part of the Trinity, as part of the Godhead, that glory has always been with Jesus. That didn't have a beginning. That hasn't been given to him. And that cannot be given away. God cannot give that glory which was without beginning to anybody else because we've all had a beginning. So do, do we follow that? Does, that? does that make sense? Is that clear? So that it can't be speaking of the glory of Christ as God, the second person of the Trinity. So that means this glory must refer to something about Jesus' human nature. Jesus is the God-man. He's in this world. And there he is. And so the glory cannot refer to the glory of him being Christ as God the, 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 in the Trinity. But it must refer to something to his human nature. Now, a little bit earlier... He prays that he may be glorified. And we realize that Jesus being glorified is when he hangs on the cross and dies and redeems mankind and then comes back to life through the resurrection and goes and sits on the right hand of God. And so there is a section of God's, Jesus' glory as Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior. Now, that's part of Jesus' glory. Now we, we can realize that that cannot be what it's talking about. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot take Jesus' place. Jesus is the only sinless man that's ever lived. He's the only sinless sacrifice that there ever was. He's the only one that can be the Redeemer. So God, the 
his glory as being Jesus, God in the Trinity, is not this glory. It cannot be the glory as the Savior. Because only Jesus is the Savior of the world. And no one else can share that glory with him. So another good practice is this. When you look at the obvious, so we put some corner, place, corner pieces and we know some things that it is not. The other thing that we should be doing is we should go back to the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so in this context, what sort of clues can we get? And maybe you've been going in your mind here and you've been thinking, if you just go on a little bit further in verse 24, it talks about God's glory. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. Aha. See my glory that you have given me. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now the glory referred to in verse 27 is easier to understand, isn't it? It's easier to understand because the verse tells us what it is. What's happened is Jesus is going to heaven. Jesus is going to be glorified. Jesus is going to be sat at the right hand of the Father in glory. And he's saying to the Father, I want these people to come to be with me to see this glory. I want these people to come to be with me in heaven so that they can see the glory of me in heaven. So Jesus is praying in verse 24 that believers will go to heaven to see his glory in exaltation. Now, the principle of using scripture to interpret scripture is vital, but it also needs care. Because I'm not convinced that the glory that it speaks of in verse 22 is the same glory that it talks about in verse 24. Confusing? Yes. But this is the reality of it. And maybe you're saying, well, why not? Why is this glory not the same glory? And again, when we look into God's word, we have to be careful with the grammar. The grammar helps us understand it. And if, if you did English literature or English grammar or even grammar in different languages, you will know that it's difficult, but it's very important so you can understand the sentence. And the grammar of verse 22 is key here. It says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And so... This is what they say is in perfect tense. And if you're giving up the will to live because we're having a lesson of English literature here, I nearly did the same. And I had to look up what exactly does past perfect tense mean. It was a long time ago since I was in school. time ago since someone was telling me, what tense is this? And I was going, what tense is it? This is past perfect tense, which means... That it's something that has happened. It means it's something that has definitely happened. There's, there's no doubt in this. Have given. Have 
given. The glory has been given. It is past tense. But in verse 24, it, it's, it's a modular verb, which means there's something that is yet to happen. So the glory that's been talked about in 21 has been given, and the glory that's in 24 is yet to be seen. So it can't be the same thing. If you've, if you've been given something, you can see it, you can feel it, can't you? you it's there. But because of, because of this difference in, in the grammar, it shows that the one has happened in the past and the other, 24, is going to happen in the future. Now the people that really think that this is right and that glory is the same glory all the way to, they, they go on to argue this. They say, well, look, verse 22 is like prophetic. Jesus is saying, I've given it. And, and he's giving it in that, that, that uh, perfect tense, although he hasn't given it yet, but because he's going to give it, it's going to happen. So it's like a prophecy. Uh, sometimes you may uh, have heard people praying, and, and, and they're thanking God for something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah? You, you sent your passport off to get a visa. And your passport's not with you, it's in somebody's office. And it's not got a visa yet. But you're thanking God that it's got a visa. And you could almost say that's prophetic. That's thanking of something that's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah? And then, so these people say, well, actually, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, I've given it, but I've given it prophetically. They will get it in verse 24 when they come to heaven and, and see it there. Now, Jesus does speak prophetically at times. But in this prayer, when he prays for his people, there's nothing of a prophetic nature. And if 22 is written in a prophetic way, why isn't 24 written in the same way? Jesus is a God of order, and that's not in order. That's, that doesn't make sense. And the glory that's in verse 22 has a purpose for the here and now. If, if, you, if you read on, and that helps a lot, he says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, the purpose of this glory was for the here and now that the disciples may be one in God and also in unity with one another. To be the witness of the world. Whereas the glory in 24 is something to be enjoyed in the future. In the future. The glory of 22 is set forth in a clause, meaning our union with one another, our union with the Father, the union with the Son, is the cause of it. The glory causes our union. But the glory of verse 24 is an eternal state, which is not the means, but it is the result. And so, what is clear here is it leads us to a question. And the question is this. What is the glory that was given to Christ and he gives to us 
And as he gives it to us, it causes us to have oneness with God and oneness with each other. So, our third point. The glory is. The glory is. I'm convinced and persuaded that this glory must be the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. The glory in 22 and Christ in us is the same. It is the Holy Spirit. And just as Christ in the human nature is in the Father and and is in the Father by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit... We as believers are in Christ through the work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now I want us to to look at some references that underline this and help us with this. Yeah. So the glory that's been spoken about here, I'm putting to you from God's word and my understanding, and I believe we're going in the right direction because of how we're doing this, is the Holy Spirit. I want us to to, to develop this and underline this and understand it in a greater sense. But by doing this, I want us to look at some references from God's word to see the God-man Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit. Now the way for Jesus, or what was the way that Jesus came into this world? Well, we all know that Jesus was born of Mary. What was special about Jesus' birth? by Mary. Well, what was very special and underlined in the Gospels is Mary didn't know a man. Mary was a virgin. And so the the child in Mary's womb was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was not a work of nature. It was a supernatural work. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, Uh, the angel is speaking to Joseph. And and he's telling Joseph this. He says in in the second part of of verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then if you look over in Luke, and Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, this is the angel speaking to Mary telling her that she's going to be of child, telling her that she's going to have Jesus as, as, as a son. And he says to her in verse 35 of chapter 1 of Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the very reason that Jesus could come into this world or the very thing that enabled Jesus to come into this world was the Holy Spirit it was the Holy Spirit's power that brought Jesus into this world and then for 30 years Jesus lived a sinless life he was without sin and then we know from the gospels that at the start of his ministry there was his baptism. And at his baptism, something special happened. 
We read about that, those of you that have been with us all the time and you were with us in the first chapter of John, John chapter 1 and verse 32, we, we, we see that John the Baptist bore witness. And this is what he said at, at the baptizing of Jesus. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So Jesus was conceived and brought into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in a special way, his 30th, around when he was 30 years old, when his ministry really started, the Spirit descended on him and remained on him. In fact, it was more than just with him. It remained on him. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a real close connection there. And in, in, in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, it goes further because in verse 1 it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's because he's just been baptized, it's just the immediate event afterwards, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So the Holy Spirit remained on him and Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit and then as he was full of the Holy Spirit he went to, away from the Jordan went into the wilderness and at that time he was tempted and when Jesus was tempted for those 40 days we read of the three big temptations that came his way and the power of the Holy Spirit, using God's word, enabled Jesus not to fall. Jesus didn't sin in that intense situation. Now it's Luke that tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us more about this. Luke tells us in the Acts of the Apostles, Luke was the author of the Gospel, not the, was the author of the Gospel of Acts and also of Luke, sorry, and he was also the author of the book which we call the Acts of the Apostles. And in chapter 20 and verse 28, he says this, "Now God anointed Jesus of Nazareth." with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now get this. God was the one who anointed. God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came to Jesus, it stayed with Jesus. He stayed with Jesus and he filled with Jesus. And the first Evidence of that was when he was tempted man to man, or, well, it wasn't man to man, was it? It was devil to man, in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the wilderness, and any other man would have fell. Jesus didn't. The Holy Spirit upheld him. And then it goes on to, to, to tell us here in, in, the, in, in Acts that Jesus was anointed, and so all the miracles that Jesus did, all the healing that Jesus did, all the casting out of demons that Jesus did was through the power of the Holy Spirit because God had given Jesus the Holy Spirit. 
And, and Luke doesn't just equate Jesus' power to the Holy Spirit, but underlines the fact that God was with Jesus because God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. So to have the Holy Spirit with you means that you have God with you. And Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, says that I and my Father are one. And you're thinking, well, the Father's in heaven and Jesus is here. How can they be one together? They're one because the Holy Spirit is there. And, and Jesus prays that we will be one. How do we become one? The Holy Spirit enables it. And so just earlier in the Gospel of John, it's again made very, very clear that God gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus. And not just gave it, he gave it without measure. Chapter 3 and verse 34, it says, For whom God has sent utters the words of God. That's speaking of Jesus. God sent him and God, Jesus is speaking the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You have this idea here in this verse, that the, the, the dual meaning, if you like, that God has given the Spirit without measure to the Son. Or you could also feel that the Son is giving the Spirit without measure uh, to others. So just as God gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus... Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit to his believers. And so when we look at this verse and it says, uh, the glory that, I have, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one in me and one with another. We're seeing here clearly that that is the Holy Spirit. This is what is going on here. But we, also can, we can also see a few references of, of Jesus giving his Holy Spirit to his believers. And this helps us as well to, to see it. If we go back to the, to the sermon that Jesus just preached. Jesus preached the sermon to the disciples in chapters 13 to uh, 16. And in chapter 14 there's a reoccurring theme. And in verses 16 to 17 it's one of the many times he says similar things. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Helper? Helpers show you what to do. Helpers enable you to do the impossible. Who is this helper? Verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit isn't for everybody. The Holy Spirit is for God's people. Those that Jesus gives it to, gives him to. Uh, Peter in his first letter makes a very direct reference to the spirit of glory. 1 Peter 4 and verse 14. And it says, if you're insulted in the name of Christ, if you're persecuted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. A direct link there. We cannot sort of think anything else. The spirit of glory. And we read the glory here that's been given to us. And John, in his letter, John wrote the Gospel of John, and then he also wrote the, uh, the letters of John, 1, 2, and 3 John. But in 1 John, uh, chapter 4 and verse 13, we read this. 
by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The only reason we can abide in Christ is because he has given us his spirit. So from the confusion, we've looked at what's clear. And from what's, what's clear, we've come to the conclusion, and I trust you're with me here, that the glory that's been spoken about here is the Holy Spirit. But building on that, I want to ask the question or, or make the statement, what is the importance of the Holy Spirit? And in the context of this is verse and this prayer, we see this. Verse 22 the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There can only be spiritual oneness with God the Father. There can only be spiritual oneness with Jesus, our Savior. There can only be spiritual oneness, unity with one another in the church, if we have received the glory that the Father gave Jesus. Yeah? The glory that he's given, he's given to them. Why? So that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit so that we could be made right with God. So that we could be one with God. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit so that we could be one with Jesus. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit so that we could have unity with one another. And so we could almost ask the question and say to ourselves, as a logical conclusion, if there is no unity in the church, that means the Holy Spirit is lacking. And in some churches, it can seem as though the Holy Spirit is present in abundance because of all the tongues and all the so-called miracles and all the noise that has been made. But then if you've got a church full of people that are not caring for each other, not living for each other, not in true unity, then that unity is not real and the Holy Spirit is not there. Because when the Holy Spirit is there, God's people are united together. United in real unity. And the only way that we can be truly united with God the Father and God the Son is if the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and in our lives. And the reason we say that is, is, is clearly from God's word. Everyone is born into this world spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead, we cannot make ourselves spiritually alive. If we had a corpse here in front of us, if we had a dead person in front of us, we could never ever imagine or think of that dead person making themselves alive. Have you ever heard of a dead person making themselves alive? It doesn't happen, does it? When, when you are dead, you are dead and there's nothing you can do about it. And we are spiritually dead and there's nothing we can do about it. 
We cannot make ourselves right with God. But when we start realizing that we are spiritually dead, when we start realizing that there is sin in our lives, when your conscience starts pricking you, you know why that's happening? That's happening because the Holy Spirit is touching your heart and your life. When suddenly you have a desire to go along to church, when suddenly you have a desire to read God's word, suddenly when you have a desire to ask questions, difficult questions, am I right with God? What is the meaning of life? The Holy Spirit is working in your life. And your Holy Spirit takes it further. And your whole, the Holy Spirit takes it to a point where you then will call upon the name of the Lord. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved because that's God's promise. But that happens because the Holy Spirit works. You see, if there's no Holy Spirit, there is no hope. No hope of salvation. But for these disciples, in the context of this prayer, Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's leaving them. And he's preparing them for a life without his physical presence. Now when Jesus was with the disciples, I think the disciples kind of felt a bit invincible. Because if your best friend can walk on water, if your best friend can bring down enough food to feed 5,000 people, if your best friend can raise the dead, if your best friend can... can bring back lame people and open blind eyes. If your best friend has got smart answers and can shut the scribes and the Pharisees up, you're sorted, aren't you? You are invincible. You can march into the synagogue and the Sanhedrin because you know that Jesus can sort it all out. But Jesus was leaving them. Jesus was leaving them. Jesus was their power. Jesus was their everything. And Jesus was going to leave them. Now, you, you've probably heard the story before of the, the young lad that was being bullied in school. And he was having a real difficult time. And he came back one home and he had a black eye and a, a grazed lip and his clothes were all messed up. And his, his brother said to him, what happened to you? And he explained to his brothers how he was beaten up by the bullies. And the, the brother said, look, we'll sort this out with you tomorrow. And so the next day, they meet the boy at the school gate, and they just said, look, you walk on ahead. We'll be behind you. And the young lad walks forward, and there are the bullies waiting for him at the corner. And normally when he walked to those bullies, he was petrified because he knew what was going to happen. He was going to get a beating. He was going to get laughed at. He was going to have a difficult time. But this time he didn't go there fearful. Why? Because he knew behind him were his brothers and the rest of the football team. He was safe. Yeah. And now the, the, the disciples were leaving, or Jesus was leaving them, and, and, and the, the, the safety that they knew was being taken away from them. But Jesus is saying to them, look, I am leaving you physically, but I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. And, and you might say, well, so what? What's the Holy Spirit? How's the Holy Spirit going to help? What, what's the good? We want you, Jesus. We want you with us. We want your physical presence. Have you ever thought that yourself? Have you ever thought it would be so much easier if Jesus was with me in this exam? 
It would be so much easier with, if Jesus was sat beside me in this car journey, helping me. It would be... I mean, in one way, that's quite selfish, because if you had Jesus, then no one else would have him. But the Holy Spirit is there with us all. And the very power that the Lord Jesus Christ had on this earth, the Holy Spirit, is the same power that he's giving to you. Or the same access to that power, should I say, he's giving to you through the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit has been given to all believers the moment they become a believer. Uh, and Jesus on this work is complete. And Jesus is seated on the right hand of God. But Jesus is with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And just as the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to complete his commission that God had for him, the Holy Spirit will enable you to complete the mission and the calling that God has for you. The only difference between Jesus' indwelling of the Holy Spirit and ours is the amount. Because Jesus was perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're not perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit in the same sense that Christ is. And, and so we can see that there is this, that this huge importance of the Holy Spirit. And we can see that this glory that he talks about here is essential for us as his children. And we should be getting excited at the thought that Jesus isn't leaving his disciples by himself. And 2,000 years on, Jesus isn't leaving us by ourselves. He is leaving us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And when there's no Holy Spirit, there's no hope. But when there is the Holy Spirit, there is abundance of hope. And so lastly, as we close this off, I want us to look at in the light of the glory or in the light of the Holy Spirit or what is the so what? What does this mean to us right now? Well, just as the Holy Spirit enabled the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, it, the Holy Spirit's power, as I've said already, is what brings us to life. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, when was the last time you thanked the Holy Spirit for your salvation? I'd really encourage you to do that because it helps you to think about what's going on here. I, I would encourage you to thank the Holy we, we thank Jesus so often, don't we? We often thank Jesus. We thank Jesus for the blood. We thank Jesus for the pain that he went through. We thank for Jesus for, for giving up his life. We thank God the Father because God the Father loved us so much that he sent his son. When was the last time you thanked the Holy Spirit who came into your heart when it was murky and black and filthy and dead and you revitalized it? Friends, we owe so much more to the Holy Spirit than we possibly re remember or know. And so I'm just beseeching you from a practical perspective, we should be thanking the Holy Spirit for our salvation. But just as the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to overcome, just as the Holy Spirit is what enabled Jesus to overcome sin. Do you get this? This is something we sometimes miss. We sometimes think that Jesus didn't sin because he was God. Well, Jesus was a man and Jesus could sin or could have sinned. But he didn't. And he wouldn't. And he was enabled not through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He was enabled to, to pray the way he prayed through the Holy Spirit. He was enabled to, to, to do miracles through the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit enables us as believers to be more than conquerors. We, we love that verse in, in, in uh, Romans 8, don't we? That we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? Of course, because of what God has done. Of course, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. But it's also because the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do it. So when was the last time you thanked Jesus for giving you the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we almost accuse Jesus for leaving us. Jesus, you're up there in the right hand of God and we're here and we've got all this difficulty. All... Thank him for the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit that's been given to you as a helper, as that paraclete. When was the last time that you really considered how essential the Holy Spirit is to your Christian walk? It's so often for us to get depressed. I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with reading God's word. I'm finding it difficult to pray. Some Sundays I, I don't want to come along to church. It's just too much for me. And we take on these burdens ourselves and we try and sort it out. And maybe we read a book, 10 Steps to Making Yourself More Christ-like. You need the Holy Spirit to make you more Christ-like. A to Z of getting over sin. You need the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Aesters that can help, but what you need is the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm beseeching you now, friends, to do is to consider how essential the Holy Spirit is and then think to yourself, what actions can I take to promote the Holy Spirit's work in my life? What action did you take this last week to promote the Holy Spirit's work in your life? This last week, did you pray, asking that the Holy Spirit would help you? When, you? when you open God's Word to read it in the morning or the afternoon or the evening or whenever your practice and habit is, did you, did you ask the Holy Spirit to open it to you? One of the most helpful things with regard to my own personal praying was when I was uh, reading a book and, and the guy who was reading the book was just saying just come honestly to God and ask him for the Holy Spirit to help you to pray. And I was, well how do I do well, I should be asking myself at the beginning of my prayer I've got this mindset you've got to thank God first and then once you thank God then you can go on to pray for others and, and ask about yourself last. No, I, I need to ask God right at the beginning that the Holy Spirit will help me to pray. What, 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 are, what are you doing in, in your life to promote the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you reading God's word? Are you meditating God's word? Are you, are you praying? Are you waiting on the Lord? When was the last time you asked God to answer Jesus' prayer? Because Jesus prayed that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, your salvation, your sanctification, your preservation, your worship, your guidance, your overcoming sin, your ultimate glorification is totally and utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And maybe our struggle in our spiritual life is because we have grieved or we are grieving the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? When there's sin in our life, when there's wrong thoughts, when there's disunity, when we've pushed God out and put other things in his place, when we stop praying seriously, we, we can easily grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is seriously sensitive. So when was the last time you asked yourself, have I grieved the Holy Spirit? Am I grieving the Holy Spirit? Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and to convict you of righteousness and to convict you of judgment and show you those things and repent and repent and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to Walk in the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And this prayer here will be continued to be answered. And God will be continued to be glorified. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that when Jesus left, he didn't leave his disciples alone. And 2,000 years on, those of us here that know you as our saviour, we've not been left by ourselves. But you've left us the Holy Spirit. You've given us the Holy Spirit. The very same Holy Spirit that enabled your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do all the things that he did on this earth and to stand firm. And so first and foremostly, we collectively come before you now and in the quiets of our hearts, and I encourage each and every one to do this, that you would confess any sin or any way that we have grieved you. Oh Lord God, we come before you now pleading that you would forgive us. Pleading, Holy Spirit, that you would forgive us for where we may have grieved you. If there's a sin that's besetting us, a habit that is pushing you out, if we're putting other things in your place, oh Lord God, show them to us. Help us to repent of them because we are in such need of the Holy Spirit to be able to live the life that you've called us to, to be able to live the life that we've been saved to live and to be able to make eternity, to see your eternal glory there. Oh Lord God, may you use this passage and may you use this verse to draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. 
Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn, Breathe on Me, a Breath of God. When the music starts, we will stand and we will sing uh, together.